Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman... Having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents." Grass withers, flower fades, and the word of our God stands forever. What is worth rejoicing over? I mean, you think about all the blessings that we have in our life, in our modern world. You think about the relationships that you have, um, just all of the things in our lives. We have so many events, so many circumstances in your life that are things to be, that are thankful for, over, and, and to rejoice about. And all of these rejoicings are right and good. We should be a thankful people. We should be a rejoicing people, specifically as Christians. But the question that I want to ask, if think about what makes us rejoice, the question that I want to be concerned with this morning that Jesus is addressing is what causes God to rejoice? What does the God in heaven rejoice over? All of it leading to this one question, which is Jesus is getting to, are you worth rejoicing over? Are you worth rejoicing over? In one sense, the the sovereign God of the universe who rules over everything has control of everything. This God is in a constant state of peace and security. He doesn't worry. He's not in heaven wondering what's coming next. He has total confidence as the sovereign God of the universe who took everything and made everything out of nothing. Ex nihilo creation. There was nothing and God made everything. And then when you have that kind of transcendent power, you are not worried about what's coming up. And so one of the main obstacles to our joy and our rejoicing is worry, is it not? What's going to happen next? I was up at um, Air Days. My brother and I entered the bags tournament. Um, we didn't do so great. But we played. We were there. And um, while I'm in the middle of... of Having fun, we had a great morning, got lots of candy, had a great lunch here, a nice workout of the boomers and everyone who helped there, um, had a great afternoon and just was up, Janet was home taking a nap, I thought, and Joel was at home hanging out and I was playing bags and Darla text and, and Janet wasn't feeling good, you know, and so, and all of these, we, our joy is so easily, um, 
hindered and stopped because we don't have sovereignty over anything really in our lives. Things come flying at us from all different directions. Well, God is not like that. He knows what's around the corner. He's not surprised. And therefore, though I don't like the the triteness of the term, our God certainly is a happy God. He is a God who lives and dwells in his own joy. But what does he specifically rejoice over? That's what Jesus is talking about this morning. Not in the generic reality, uh, the, the perpetual reality of God being a happy God because he's sovereign, but something specifically that he does rejoice over. And we can make many guesses. We don't have to guess. We have divine revelation to us coming through Luke, writing this down to us, the words of Jesus in our gospel. Jesus says in our text this morning what God rejoices over. He rejoices over the sinner who repents. Our main idea for this morning is that the Father rejoices over those in His family. This is our big main idea. The Father rejoices over those in His family. So our narrative begins with an accusation against Jesus from these tax collectors, right? They've just finished a very difficult, strong chapter about the cost of discipleship. And now we move on. The tax collectors and the sinners have an accusation against Jesus. And what is it? Well, he lets tax collectors and sinners eat with him. They, are, they, they mean this as a mark against Jesus. A truly religious person would know the company that they are with And they would not want to entertain. If they took holiness seriously, if they really cared about their holiness, their righteousness, there is no way they would hang out with these sinners and tax collectors because they're going to ruin their holiness. To be there, there's no way they're going to have them over and have supper with sinners. Because to be a sinner is to be thrown out of the presence of that which is holy. If, you, if something is divine and righteous and good and light, what happens to the darkness when it meets the light? The darkness is dispelled. So therefore, if you're seeking for righteousness and holiness, which Jesus is righteous and holy, he should have no part with these sinners. And that's the Pharisee's complaint. Why would someone holy have anything to do with these people who are polluted and therefore polluting. This is a huge reality for us to understand in these parables. Aren't the Pharisees right? I mean, I know we've gone through these parables and you've heard them. If you've been in church very long, you know these three parables, the sheep, the coin, and the lost son. You know these parables, but don't the Pharisees have a point? Do you take that which is soiled dirty and keep it with that which is not? When I get home from the mail route, I'm a city letter letter carrier in my other job, and and it's been hot and awful. And when I get done with my day, my clothes are dirty and gross. And I shower as soon as I get home. I do not take these dirty, sweaty clothes and then put them next to the outfit that I'm going, my uniform I'm going to wear tomorrow. That would be foolish, wouldn't it? Because what's going to happen? Well, all the gross mailman things that are going on on this day are going to pollute all of the mailman stuff that I haven't even got in for tomorrow yet. Is is that not right? It it makes sense, doesn't it? We had our luncheon here last uh, yesterday, and some of the buns that we had bought, we opened them up, and we found 
mold on the inside and we're serving the public. I'm, uh, we threw them away. Uh, I don't mean, like, we didn't serve them to the public. My point is, though, I didn't take those like, oh, I'll take those home and put them in with my bread. You know, if we're not going to serve them here. What do you do with things that are moldy? You, you get rid of the mold, at least if you're real old school, I guess you get rid of the mold and you keep eating the bread. Uh, we don't do that anymore. We get rid of the whole thing. Because what happens if something polluted is kept near that which is not polluted, the pollution comes across. So the Pharisees are right. Why would Jesus hang out with these people? It makes sense then that if Jesus wants to remain holy, he would keep himself away from those who are not holy. But as soon as we admit that, we run into a huge problem. And it's this. We are all the sinners Jesus should have nothing to do with. If, if, we, if we take that all the way, then that means God, Jesus, should have nothing to do with us. Nothing to do with the Pharisees. Because that which is holy should have nothing to do with that which is unholy. We've got a major problem here. Do we not? We've got a major, major problem. If there is any message that is clear from Scripture, it is that since the fall of the world, since Adam and Eve and their plunge into rebellion, the world has been full of no one but sinners. No one but sinners. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. Show up at CYF. You're going to learn that verse at some point. Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All there is, the whole world is populated by sinners. These Pharisees, if they object, he can't, that which is holy shouldn't have fellowship with that which is not holy. Well, then that puts all of us in big trouble. That the Pharisees, what they don't understand is that they're right in this accusation, but that also means Jesus shouldn't show up to their parties either. <laughs> their main complaint is he goes and eats off with these unrighteous people, but they want to have a party and have, that was just back in chapter 14. They want to have Jesus at their parties because they're the righteous, they're not the sinners. But what they don't get is that reality puts all of us in big trouble. They're not blown away by the grace of God that would have a meal with even them, sinners. These three parables in this, in this 15th chapter, chapter, they all tell essentially one same single reality. And it is the reality that God rejoices in the redemption of sinners. God rejoices in the redemption of sinners. A sheep is lost, right? The first parable. A sheep is lost. He's got a hundred. He leaves the ninety-nine to go seek after the one. And when he finds it, he puts it on his shoulders and then he carries it home. And, he and when he gets there, what does he do? He rejoices. The, the, the point of the parable is the joy that is there. Okay, we could, you can, it's not an allegory. Oh, this is this, this is that. The whole point is the joy that is there. That's the point. The lady loses a coin and she is so desperate to find this coin. She lights a lamp. It's dark in the room. She doesn't have electricity like us. She lights a lamp, sweeps the whole house to find this one coin. And the whole point is what? Her joy when she finds it. The point of these parables, and even down in the prodigal son or the lost son that we'll get to, is the joy that is there. 
Jesus says that in the same way, the joy of finding the sheep, the joy of finding the coin, God rejoices when that which is lost, which is a sinner in their sins, when they repent and are reconciled back to God, His joy is uh, overshadows even this joy, even more so. There's more joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. There will be more joy in verse 7 in heaven over one sinner who repents. Now, just to address verse 7, if you still have your Bible out, you can look. There's this weird, people have, get hung up here. Just so I tell you, it says, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Can I just answer that real quickly? Do you know why there's no joy in heaven over the 99 righteous people who don't need to repent? Because they're works of fiction. <laughs> they don't exist. Heaven doesn't, doesn't rejoice over imaginary people. There's no joy in heaven over the 99 righteous people who do not repent because they are figments of our imagination. They don't exist. The, the, the Pharisees think they're righteous. They have an external righteousness. But as Romans 3.23 tells us, uh, there is no righteous person. There's no joy in heaven over the righteous who don't need to repent because God is not fond of rejoicing in make-believe. These people do not exist. So that's not the category that any of us fall into. But how is it possible this God who is holy, righteous, just, perfect, should not have anything to do with unrighteous, sinful people, and yet when they are saved, He rejoices. How does God go from being too holy to have any company even with us to rejoicing of over our repentance? What is this repentance doing? Well, in the days of Jesus, just a little Old Testament idea, thoughts here. In the days of Jesus, and for hundreds of years before Him, the way that an individual participated in their repentance was through confession of their sin, admitting that they were a sinner, and bringing a sacrifice to the temple, that it would make atonement for their sin. This is what the book of Leviticus, I know that you all probably, if you have your choice in your Bible reading, you flip open to Leviticus and do some reading in Leviticus. It's real light reading. But the whole point of Leviticus is this, is this imagery, is this is this atonement being accomplished that the sinner who knows they sit under the just judgment of God comes to the temple confessing themselves as a sinner and they bring a sacrifice, they bring a burnt offering, they bring something to the temple that is then given to God in faith to cover over their sins. It's what Leviticus, right at the beginning, chapter 1, verse 4, is what it says about the burnt offerings. It says, it shall be... This offering, it shall be accepted to make atonement for him. They confessed themselves as sinners, brought sacrifices to God, to the temple, trusting in these sacrifices' atoning abilities, and God would forgive their sins. It's amazing. Atonement, which is the best, easiest way to think of atonement, is to break the word out. Out at one meant. It brings unity, it makes you one. Atonement. In, in the very elementary way of understanding, but it's easy to remember, atonement is at one minute. We are separated from God. We are apart from Him due to our sin. And what atonement does is it reconciles us to God. It makes us one again. Atonement. And how is this achieved? The person, the sinner, comes realizing they're under God's judgment and they bring a sacrifice 
and forgiveness is a, atonement is made. What an amazing gift to God's people that He set that system up. But it's gone. We don't have it anymore. You can't, you can no longer take a sacrifice to a temple that doesn't exist anymore to bring about atonement. That is now gone. Should we pray and go home? No. Thank you, Lord, for chuckling. No, that, that's not, that was, that's terrible news. They, but that, that, that reality, that atonement, that sacrifice is now gone. But the beauty of all of those sacrifices, they were just pointers. They were foreshadowing. They were a foretelling, a shadow of things to come, of this great reality, a greater sacrifice that one day would take place. The sacrifice that is one day going to take place doesn't need to be offered day after day after day, or every time we gather we have to come and bring a new sacrifice. This is a sacrifice that, as the writer of Hebrews puts it, is given once for all. A sacrifice that is given once for all. And this sacrifice is the offering up of the life of Jesus by laying down His life on the cross, by giving it up of His own will. And that's the march that Jesus is headed toward here in Luke. And what we know after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is that in the same way they would confess themselves sinners and trust in the atoning work of their sacrifice, all people... Not just the Jews in Israel, but all people from every tribe, tongue, and nation now is given this laid out in front of them. This reality of when you come confessing your sins and trusting in this atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross as a substitute, as a sacrifice for your sins, atonement is accomplished. That you who are have no right to even eat with God, can now become a part of His family. There is, when this repentance this, that, that God is rejoicing in, when this occurs in a person's life, there's no fear of them polluting God's holiness because they are washed white in the blood of the Lamb, as the hymn writer puts it. Their record of debt, the Colossians, Paul writes in Colossians, their record of debt that stood against them is canceled and wiped away. As Psalm 103 says, their sins Though they are many, they are cast as far as the east is from the west. They are thrown into the bottom of the sea, never to be remembered again. This is incredible news for the Christian. This is good news. This is good news. Because every one of us in this place this morning, upon our own power, sits totally separated. You shouldn't get to share a sardine with Jesus. That's, and that's a small... Everyone knows a sardine. You shouldn't get to share a cracker, a drink of water. Holy, righteous, perfect, fallen man. And what has God done? He has sent His Son into the world to live the righteous life we should have lived, die the death that we deserve, so that through repentance and faith, we might come into His presence, atonement might be made, and we would be reconciled and brought in to the family of this Holy Father. This is good news. This is something to rejoice over. This is incredible news. It's, the, it's what we've been focusing on through our summer series in Philippians. The joy that is found in a Christian who knows this God as their Father. Who has a right standing, a righteousness not of their own, which comes through the law. But that which comes through faith in Christ. 
This is what Philippians, this is what the call to discipleship in chapter 14 is about. Seeing the great value of what we have in Christ that makes everything pale in comparison. However, that's not the point of the parables this morning. We have great joy. We should. We have great joy. The point of the parables is God's rejoicing in this work. It makes sense that we would rejoice in this, and you all should be if you are here and have repented and are repenting, trusting in Christ. There should be a joy that wells up within us from this reality. But the point of these parables is God's joy for this. God is happy about this. God is happy about this work. Do, you, do we rejoice for our redemption or does God rejoice for our de- redemption? Is it we who are glad that we are redeemed or is it God who is glad that he has redeemed us? And the reality is those don't conflict. Both of them are a reality. We rejoice and God rejoices in this redeeming. And the reason why this, this really just it, it spoke to me, challenges me this week is the struggle in my own heart. And maybe in your heart as well, as we think, we get the picture that God's accepting of us. And it's clear that we should rejoice that God has accepted us. But sometimes in my heart, it feels like it's a begrudging acceptance. Like, you know, okay. Well, another one. This guy, he's confessing himself as a sinner. He's looking to Christ. Yeah, he's glad. But man, I am really disappointed in that guy. But, uh, but pretty much he's done it. So um, I'm not happy about it. I'll, I'll, he, he's in. So I'll take him in. But man, he really gets a lot of things wrong. And I think that is a, a lot of time the Christian experience. That we know, we know we should be glad in the gospel. We know that God has done this work. But there still is this sense of maybe fatherly disappointment or just sort of, or sort of judicial, yes, yes, yes to you, no to you, no to you, yes, you've done, yes, you've repented, there's repentance in your heart, yes, you are part of my people, no, you are not, and there's this sort of judicial, cold, just reality to it. That is not the picture we get from Scripture. That is not what Jesus is communicating. I have a hard time putting this reality into words, trying to find ways to picture it, trying to find ways to illustrate it. But I just want to, just as plain as I can say it, if you have repented, if you are repentant over your sinfulness, if you are trusting in Christ, hear me. If you are repentant, if you are repenting of your sin, trusting in Christ, God is glad to have you be His. God is glad, not just passively, sort of judiciously saying, you're mine. There is a joy that comes from your Father in heaven when you are His. That is not some cold, lifeless, uh, emotionless reality. There is an emotive rejoicing that exists in your Father in heaven that you would be His. That is a warm blanket and the cold nights that this life brings us sometimes. When you go through difficulties, when, when trials come your way, and, and when you mess up, is it, can anyone else confess that you sometimes still sin? You sometimes still have a reason to be thrown out of God's kingdom, and yet the blood of Jesus is sufficient to wash away all your transgressions and to adopt you into His family. And that Father who adopts you doesn't just do it because He's obligated to, He does it because He is glad to make you His own. 
That blows me away. I wish you'd hear that. I pray you would hear the grand reality of what it means that God is glad to make you His. No obligation on His part to do this. No ulterior, no motive that's forcing His hand. It is joy in His heart to do this. Two years ago, we did the series from Zephaniah. And this is the end of, 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 of the small minor prophet Zephaniah. It says this, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Looking forward to the final day of redemption. It says, On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, the people of God, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. You hear the redundancy in this? He will rejoice over you with gladness. God being glad in the work he has done to bring sinners back to himself. Continuing Zephaniah 3, he will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. God is going to rejoice and sing over all those who are made His through the work of Jesus Christ. The hunger that we all feel, that desire for final, unspoiled rejoicing, will one day be had. We will rejoice in our rejoicing God's salvation. The joy, we talk about joy overspilling, the fullness of God's joy. It's going to be our joy to be there. And God's joy is going to be overwhelming in having these redeemed sinners there based upon nothing but His kindness and goodness and grace towards us. These joys overspilling, joys overspilling, rejoicing overspilling. How I long for this day. How I desire for that joy to be the joy of First Christian Church. That God would redeem sinners and blown away. That God would rejoice in our rejoicing that He saves sinners. The Christian life is a life lived in this reality. Our joy in God's joyous salvation of us undeserving sinners. Let's pray. Father, as we now head into a time of coming to communion, I pray for the joy. I pray for the peace. I pray for the hope. I pray for the solid foundation, just the, the overwhelming joy of the reality of you rescuing sinners through the work of your son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. May we come repentant, knowing we deserve none of this. This is not by our merits. This is by your grace. Grace upon grace upon grace. I pray, God, you'd give us all eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts brought to life in the fullness of the joy that is found in this great reality. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.